Well, today we're going to begin looking at Peter's famous confession of faith in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. And uh, this is part one. We need a couple weeks because you remember this is where, after saying such a good thing, he rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to have to uh, be betrayed and killed and get the, behind me Satan and all those things. It's really a very heavy little section of scripture. Um, so we're going to take a little time to look at that. And uh, today, just looking at the first part where Peter makes his great confession. And I provided the text for you there, Matthew 16. If you look at verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coasts, Mark 8:27 says, When he comes into the towns, uh, the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, by the way, on the roadside, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the old prophets is risen again. And he says unto them, But whom say ye, all of you, that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it's a great text of Scripture, and there's all kinds of um, moving parts here that are really important, not just in what we're looking at today, but in the next two weeks. Besides, it actually has, this, this passage actually has huge problems connected with it that are hard to explain and all those things, and, and so we want to make sure we give it plenty of time. It's a really great text. All right, so you see the first bullet point there. We're talking about the order of things, and Mark 7 and 8 are probably really close to the chronology when all this stuff happened and and in what order. So we're looking at Mark 7 and 8, and it says, Over a relatively short period of time, we see Jesus cross from the west side of the Sea of Galilee after visiting Tyre and Sidon farther west on the Mediterranean Sea to somewhere on the far east side of the Sea of Galilee, Decapolis, back to the west side near Magdala in the 9 o'clock position on the sea and back to the north side in the 1 o'clock position on the sea where Bethsaida is and then going 25 miles north by land to the northern border of Israel, way north, as far north as you can go, to Caesarea Philippi. That's 10 o'clock, then 3 o'clock, then 9 o'clock, then 1 o'clock and that's where Jesus has been going back and forth in this little section of Mark 7 and 8. Back and forth, Jesus traveled across the 8-mile-wide by 13-mile-long Sea of Galilee and beyond. So it's not that big of a deal to cross the Sea of Galilee. I mean, people do it all the time. If you were on a uh, Holy Land tour, undoubtedly you would do that and uh, just cross. They always have the boats out there carrying the tourists back and forth, and then you can stop and have the special kind of fish that they serve that uh, often were caught Uh, as far as we know, even 2,000 years ago in the Sea of Galilee. So it's no big deal to cross it back and forth. But just notice that Jesus is busy and he's always going back and forth. So here he is uh, once again now at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. You disembark and then you walk north a long ways to get to Caesarea Philippi by land. All right, then you see the second bullet point. Uh, Jesus' question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And on that subject, Son of Man. Son of Man is Jesus' preferred title for himself. That's what he likes. Uh, you could call him the Son of God, and you know he'll do that in a moment, actually. But Jesus normally calls himself the Son of Man. That's the title that he chooses. And that is a term loaded with messianic connotations since the term occurs in the messianic description of Daniel 7. 
verse 13. So when Daniel's talking about the end of time, he says, the ancient of days, God the Father, is sitting on the throne, and here the Son of Man comes to the ancient of days. So it's Messiah coming to God the Father. And once Daniel said that in Daniel chapter 7, that becomes then and there a favorite term for Messiah. And if you look at the literature of the intertestamental period, you know, between Malachi and Matthew, they say son of man all the time when referring to Jesus. So to us, or to Messiah, to us, we think, oh, son of God, that's, that's the big messianic term because he's the son of God. Well, that is a messianic term. But the really big messianic term in his day would have been son of man because everybody connected that with Daniel chapter 7, the end of the world, and Messiah comes and judges everybody and makes it all right again. So son of man is a huge messianic term, and that's the one that Jesus uses more than any other. The next bullet point there, ironically, the disciples mention no people because the question is, who do people say that I am? The disciples mentioned no people who were suggesting that Jesus was the Messiah. That's really interesting. Who do they say I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, one of the other prophets from old times, risen from the dead. And not one of them suggested, oh, a lot of people think you're the Messiah. Nobody seems to suggest that, which is interesting. In parentheses there, there were some, like the two blind men in chapter 9 of Mark, and the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 15 who called Jesus the son of David. Uh, The truth, that's Matthew, I should have said, not Mark. The truth must have been still very unpopular. Nobody is calling him Messiah, or at least very few people. When they call him son of David, they're essentially calling him Messiah. But uh, when asked, who do the people say that I am? Uh, Messiah doesn't come up and all those other suggestions do. Now, the suggestions... These are all really interesting, I think, in the fourth bullet point there. People may have imagined that Jesus was one of the resurrected um, prophets because he had certain traits in common with them. Remember, in Elijah's case, resurrection was clearly predicted by Malachi 4-5 uh, because Elijah was going to prepare the way. And uh, Elijah had already been dead. He is in about 800 B.C. Malachi is 400. So Elijah's been dead for 400 years. And Malachi says, well, Elijah will, will prepare the way for the Lord. Well, that would require resurrection. At any case, resurrection was clearly predicted in Elijah's situation. And several prophets of old were suggested for Jesus' earthly ministry as Jesus' real identity. So what did they suggest? Who do the people say that I am? The first hollow bullet. They might have wondered if Jesus was John the Baptist because Jesus was obviously a great prophet and it was said of John that there had not risen a greater person than John the Baptist. Uh, Herod was afraid that this might be the case. So there was this buzz that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist returned from death. You could imagine that because... John the Baptist was powerful, engaging. Uh, When people talked to John the Baptist, undoubtedly they had like butterflies in their stomach because he's such a powerful person to be around. And then they felt the same way about Jesus. So if they heard the one, they could imagine it's the same feeling, the same sort of power. And so maybe they thought Jesus was like John the Baptist. And certainly there were some, including Herod, who thought that. The second suggestion was that maybe he was Elijah. And the second hollow bullet there, 
Uh, they might have wondered if Jesus was Elijah because Elijah was a premier miracle-working prophet and because Elijah was prophesied to be the one who would escort the Messiah into the glorious age of the end times. Jesus was famous for his miracles and the end times seemed to be near during his earthly ministry. So basically, everything you could say about Elijah could also be said about John the Baptist. Everything you say about John the Baptist could also be said about Elijah, except this one thing. John the Baptist did no miracles. And Elijah was famous for his miracles. So in the Old Testament, there were three great miracle eras. Moses, and he did miracles, the ten plagues of Egypt and all of that. And then you come across the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. And that was extraordinary. You know, that was really something. So Moses and Joshua, if you want to lump them together, then Elijah and Elisha, if we lump them together. And then God is kind of quiet again until Jesus and his apostles come on the scene. That's not Old Testament technically, but we're not at Calvary yet to initiate the New Testament. So in a way, uh, they're serving under Old Testament times. And um, so those are the three big miracle times. And here is Jesus doing all these miracles. And if you were to ask people, so who does that remind you of? I think, ooh, that's like Elijah. Elijah did all these miracles. And that's probably why that came up. One more suggestion with Jeremiah, the third hollow bullet. They might have wondered if Jesus was Jeremiah because Jeremiah was known as the tender-hearted weeping prophet. You know, you have his book called Lamentations. That means crying. He was the one who cried, a whole book of crying. So Jeremiah was the tender-hearted weeping prophet, and Jesus was obviously the most tender-hearted prophet anyone had ever seen. So, you know, why would they say that they thought Jesus might be Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah was such a sweet person. And then here is Jesus, and who would have been more sweet, more kind, more gentle than Jesus? And so maybe they thought uh, Jeremiah would be like that. And so those were the suggestions We're reminded that the Jewish people did believe in resurrection, right? Because any of those would have required resurrection. Elijah is a little different because he never died properly. But uh, obviously there was no big problem in the Jewish mind of resurrection. It didn't come up all the time, but they didn't oppose resurrection either. And so we find the idea of resurrection here, and that's really interesting. And um, we find that in this whole dialogue, you know, who do people say that I am? We find that it's the best of everything. Who is Jesus? He's the best of everything. He's like John the Baptist because there was never a greater person than John the Baptist. He was just such a person of integrity and personal power. And so he's like Jesus is like the best of everything. Like John the Baptist was so filled with integrity and and courage and faith and power. And he's like Jeremiah, such a tender-hearted person, Jesus. He's He's just the best of everything, so tender-hearted. And he's like Elijah because he does all of these miracles. You know, who is Jesus like? Jesus is the ultimate man. He's the ultimate everything. And it's really interesting when you think Elijah and Jeremiah are like polar opposites, right? Because Elijah was hard-hitting and, and uh, you know, go kill the prophets of Baal, and they did. So Elijah is really a hard nose, hard-hitting, and Jeremiah is soft And so even though they're so opposite, you see all of the best of these men in Jesus. And it's great that they thought Jesus was all of that because he was that wonderful. Uh, Does that raise any questions or observations, Carol?
Yeah, Carol, if you can hear her, she's saying, why would they think he's John the Baptist? Because they could have seen the two men together, like, you know, when Jesus was baptized. That's why we think that John the Baptist went to prison almost immediately after Jesus had that interview with Nicodemus very early in Jesus' ministry. And then we think John the Baptist was in prison for two years and then quietly executed. So he had been out of circulation for a long time and probably not that many people, particularly up in Galilee, probably not that many people had ever seen them together. And it's really interesting that Herod had not seen them together because he's the one who wondered if Jesus might be uh, John the Baptist risen from death. So that's apparently they weren't together very often. So, John. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they didn't have TV back then, so it wouldn't be necessarily obvious that they were together on those several occasions. Amy. Yeah, I, I've thought about that, too. You wonder if they did that intentionally. As it turns out, Son of Man is also the way God addresses Ezekiel over and over again in the book of Ezekiel. So it's OK. But at a certain point, you know, in the Jewish mind, you could be the the son of a man but in the jewish way of thinking that term son of man became loaded uh, special connotations yeah okay so one more solid bullet point right at the very bottom of that discussion so jesus says well who do you say and remember when you're reading in the old translation whom do ye say and ye is always plural right why ye will never be singular And thou will never be plural. Thou is one, ye is two. So at least we have those advantages when we're reading the archaic English. But the question is, who do y'all say that I am? You know, you plural. And Peter speaks for them all. Peter's the only one that answers, but he speaks for them all. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And uh, you see the hollow or the solid bullet there. The Messiah is the one who would save his followers from their sins as well as from their enemies. And we know that from all these Bible prophecies. So when a fellow like Peter says, we've decided that you are Christos, that's the same as the word for Messiah. Never forget that when you see the word Christ, it's the same as Messiah. You can see the word Christen in Christ. Uh, That's when other denominations sprinkle a baby. He's christened. That's the word Christ, and it's the same as anointed. You can sprinkle a baby, or uh, you can anoint him with water, baptism water, if you're in that denomination. Christ, christen, anoint, Messiah, all the same. The word Messiah means to anoint. He is the anointed one. Uh, Anointed meaning that he has been chosen and publicly, uh, symbolically shown to be the chosen one with the anointing. So Messiah is the anointed one, and so is Christ. It's exactly the same. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you are the Messiah. And for a Jewish person, Messiah is not just one who saves us from our sins, but it is there, of course. Uh, He is the one who also saves us from our enemies. And all of that comes through in all of the Messianic texts. Now, I've shown you this little uh, graphic before with all the Bible verses, but I just wanted to, to show you again very briefly what did Peter mean when he said, you are the Christ, you're the, the Messiah that we've been talking about for all of these decades and centuries in Judaism. 
And so here's what they were expecting. Messiah would be a Jewish. And if you look at all of the the bold and large font, a Jewish God man, God man, because he is uh, from Micah five, the governor whose goings forth are from everlasting. He's not a normal man. So he's Jewish because he comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's Jewish, but he's not normal. He is the God-man whose goings forth are from everlasting. So a Jewish God-man would arise from Bethlehem, Judah, for the blessing of all mankind. In him shall all nations be blessed. At first unrecognized, Isaiah 53, 2, he will grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root from dry ground, and uh, we wouldn't desire him. At first he's unrecognized. He doesn't look like a Messiah. This person would endure rejection and an atoning death. That's Isaiah 53, which you're very familiar with. So rejection, he was despised and rejected. He poured out his soul in offering for sin. This would all take place 483 years after the commencement of Nehemiah's career from Daniel chapter uh, uh, 9, verse 24 through 27. And then even after dying, this person would somehow live long and his prosperity would multiply and he would be anointed. There's the term um, messianic again, anointed. From Isaiah 53, he will have his days prolonged after he's already been dead. How do you prolong a guy's days if he's been dead? Killed. The answer is resurrection. So even after dying, he would have his days prolonged. He would assume the throne of David in Israel. That's the Davidic covenant. Uh, I will establish his throne forever. He would utterly and miraculously defeat all his enemies. Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes unto you. He's just, having salvation, lowly, and riding on an ass, the, the, the colt. And then in the underlying section, his dominion shall be from sea to shining sea. And that's the Messiah ruling over Israel's enemies. And he would reign forever in inestimable peace and power. He'll rule them with a rod of iron forever. Of the increase of his government, there won't be any end forever. So you see, that's what Peter meant. Whether he understood every bit of that or not, I don't think he did. But that's what he had in mind. As much as he did process it, digest it from the Old Testament, that's what he meant when he said, we have decided that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's that was a big thing to say. He wasn't saying Jesus was just like Elijah, or just like John the Baptist, or just like Jeremiah. He was saying, you're the Messiah, You're going to free us from our enemies and you're going to save us from our sins. That's what we have decided that you are. And that was a big statement. So the Lord was pleased with that. And, you know, he blessed Peter for saying it. It was a big deal. Josiah? Well, again, the very best place that it occurs is in uh, Daniel chapter 9. And uh, so in the middle of the 70 weeks prophecy, it says, Messiah shall be cut off. There are some Orthodox Jews who will read that and they don't want that to say Messiah shall be cut off. They want it to be the anointed shall be cut off because a lot of people were anointed and you could dodge the messianic implications. Technically in Hebrew, you can't, just from the definition of the word, you can't absolutely prove that this is the Messiah and could be no other. 
But once again, in that same context, in Daniel 9.24, it lists the things that are going to happen at the end of this 70-week period. And it says, interestingly, the word anointed is going to come up, to anoint the most holy. Well, uh, again, almost every word in that phrase is loaded. To anoint, that's the word Messiah. I mean, it's related. To anoint the most holy? I mean, who is the most holy? He's a God-man. It's not a normal person. So when you go down and you say, well, the anointed one is going to be cut off. And we're talking about in the same breath, anointing the most holy. You have to be talking about a divine Messiah. So... Technically, it'd be interesting if anybody has a King James concordance on your cell phone or something. Uh, see if the word Messiah occurs anywhere else in the New Testament besides Daniel nine. I don't think it does, but I might be wrong. Okay, so in the King James version, it's Daniel nine only. But every time you see the word anointed in Scripture, you have to make sure that it's a normal. Ordinary human anointed because it could also be a reference to Messiah, Billy. Yes, um, there was there would be a lot of enthusiasm if Elijah was here because after Elijah comes the end of time and uh, Messiah would do his work. So that's very good. Yes, Christie's mom. Yep, that's a good insight. Of course, I'm mad at you because that was my point and you ruined my thunder. To reiterate, if you look at the last. The last solid bullet under uh, that long list of messianic texts. You are the son of the living God, verse 16, as opposed to the son of some dead idol God. Is that okay, Christie's mom? Is that right? Um, and, and that is, besides being the messianic son of man, so, you know, the son of man, that's huge. Uh, besides that, Jesus is also the son of God, uh, the supernatural person who is the same kind of being as the father. And, and that's significant. And by the way, uh, just as providence would have it, you know, this morning we were talking about the church, First Timothy three, fourteen and following, uh, that you mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the living God. Uh, so it's interesting that both uh, services tonight we ran into that phrase, the living God, as opposed to dead gods who can't help you. So, yeah, that's great. And, and to put that in a, a historical framework again, you have to remember that beginning with Julius Caesar, who is, you know, before the time of Christ, I think he's about 30 B.C., but I can't remember. But beginning with Julius Caesar, the official, you know, first Roman emperor, he called himself a god and expected to be worshipped as a god. And basically all of the Roman emperors considered themselves to be gods. It was common for them to have coins made, for example, in the outfit of, say, Zeus, but put their own face on it because they claimed to be gods. And that's why the Christians eventually suffered during the imperial persecutions of Rome because they wouldn't burn incense to the emperor as a god. So all of these emperors in the Roman Empire, uh, to one degree or another, Uh, claimed to be gods. They weren't just kings. They were gods. And it's because they thought in those days that um, what we would call demons, they would call them sometimes diamonds, uh, like D-A-I-M-O-N. They wanted diamonds, the spirits of the gods, 
to come inside their bodies and give them special talents and wisdom and strength. And so they invited them. Please have the diamonds come inside them. And they probably (laughs) granted those requests and the diamonds were inside them. And that's exactly what they wanted. And then they considered themselves to be inhabited by the gods that they worshipped. And they were glad it was so. And not only in Rome, as recently as World War II, the emperor of Japan claimed to be divine. In Asia, this was just everywhere all the time. All those Asian kings, uh, rulers in the dynasties, they claimed to be gods. And of course, that's what the Egyptian kings claimed to do. And then the Babylonian, Mesopotamian kings. I mean, this is standard issue. When a king comes on the scene in those days, he would claim to be a god. And oftentimes he would say, I am the son of a particular god. So when Jesus is told by Peter that they have come to believe that he's the son of the living God, that is, that is a big statement. They mean, we don't think you're a normal human being. We think you are the God-man. So, when you're talking to Jehovah's Witness friends, and they say, well, it's not that big of a deal that Jesus is called the Son of the living God, because even Adam is called the Son of God in the Luke genealogy in the opening of the Gospel of Luke, And the angels are called sons of God, evidently, in the book of Job and Genesis. So it doesn't mean that much to say that he was the son of God. So is Adam, you know. Well, Adam never claimed to be a king. He never claimed to have supernatural powers. But Jesus did. And when a king in those days did miracles and allowed himself to be called the Son of God, he is saying, I am the same kind of being as the Father. If the Father were an angel, then Jesus could be an angel. But the Father is not an angel. The Father is God, the same kind of being. And Jesus was saying, I am the same kind of being as God the Father. Not an angel, not a human I am the son of the living God. And that is uh, no small thing to say in the Roman Empire in those days. Uh, Does that raise any questions or observations? So you have two terms back to back in this text. He is the son of man. Uh, Whom do people say that I, the son of man, am? And you are the Christ, the son of the living God, son of man, son of God, side by side in the same dialogue. And uh, I think that's very interesting. Um, To make application, you know, uh, the little list we have at the bottom of page 127. That's a great question. Uh, One of the great things you can do in your Bible study at home is to ask yourself, who do I think that Jesus is? What is Jesus to me? If Jesus were to say, you know, Dave, what do you say? Whom do you say that I am? And it's interesting if we were going to be all honest, if we could answer that question in a way that would give Jesus the honor that he deserves. So, for example, 
Is Jesus an annoyance to me? Or is he pleasant? Are you tired of serving Jesus? Is it too hard? Is, is he always after you for one more thing? Are you sick and tired of doing what he wants you to do? Has he become annoying? And hopefully the answer is, no, he's not annoying. It's there is joy in serving Jesus. I'll serve him. I want to serve him. And he's not an annoyance. But it's possible. I mean, this happens. Remember in Old Testament days, the people said, what a weariness is it to bring these sacrifices to the temple? What a weariness. I'm so tired of it all. Well, are we tired of it? Is, is Jesus too much trouble? And hopefully if Jesus asks us in a weak moment when we're not feeling real good about being mistreated in ministry or working more hours than we hoped a certain thing would take in serving him, hopefully we'd say, no, Lord, you are not an annoyance. I'm glad to serve you. It's pleasant to serve you. It's what I want to do. And hopefully that would be your attitude. The next one there, is he a cruel master to me or do I think he's merciful? Cruel, like why is it that I have been diagnosed with this? That's just cruel. Is he cruel? Whom do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, I think you're kind of mean. I think you're not cutting me any slack. Um, I think that maybe you're a little hard on Job, and I think maybe you're a little hard on me. Who do you say that I am? And hopefully the answer would be wonderful, merciful Savior. I think you're great. And um, if we're not careful, we might we might say the wrong thing there. We might allow our hearts to think the wrong thing there. Uh, the third one down. Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus an aloof celebrity to me? Or is he warm and engaged? Uh, is Jesus far away? I, I can't get to him. He never pays attention to me. I pray and nothing happens. I look for a break and I can't catch a break. He's like, I'm sure he's very nice, but he must be very busy and he never gets around to me. And here I stand. Is that what Jesus is to you? Is he a celebrity who really is too busy to be bothered? Or is he warm and engaged? Do you feel like you could sit in his presence tonight and enjoy his real presence right then and there as a father and child would enjoy one another? Is it like that? Or is God a God who is far off and I can't seem to talk to him or to hear him talk to me? Hopefully, the answer to the question who do you say that I am, is I think you're very warm and engaging. Uh, that's who I think you are. The next one, is he an embarrassing relative to me or is he my glory? Am I glad for people to know I'm a Christian? That's what we're talking about this morning. Our current vice president, sometimes people call him, you know, our, our crazy uncle. Has Jesus become the crazy uncle to you? Like, this is so embarrassing. You know, if you're in high school, you know all about this. Do I even want people to know that I'm a Christian? This is so embarrassing. But not just in high school. Uh, what happens when your critical friends, your skeptical friends start uh, trash-talking Jesus? What happens? 
when that whole North Carolina bathroom thing comes up, you think, this is just so embarrassing. I hope nobody asks me about it. I don't even want to go there because I'm just embarrassed. You know, I'm a misfit in this society and to side with Jesus is just a lot of trouble and I'd like to avoid it. Is Jesus the embarrassing relative or you think he's great, you know, I'll stand with Jesus anytime. Which is it? Tom. Yeah, and changing so quickly, it's amazing. Not so long ago, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, had this gathering in Washington and he stood before other atheists and he said, We should ridicule Christians. You know, people say it's not nice. He said, no, we should show them the foolishness of what they're doing. That is a major strategy that we should engage in. When they're saying things that are ignorant, we should ridicule them. <laughs> like, Richard? But, um, you know, that's the spirit of our age. You know, some people say, no, you have to play nice. You know, you have to tolerate those Christians. And Richard Dawkins says, do not tolerate them. You ridicule them and, and mock what they believe. Uh, because sometimes the only thing that shakes a person out of his you know, ignorance is mockery. So I would say our society is doing a pretty good job of that right now. They really are trying to bully us into being embarrassed for our faith. Uh, I'll tell you more details about it sometime, but it is so interesting to um, read about the bakery in Oregon where the nice young Christian couple was basically put out of business because they wouldn't make the cake for the gay wedding. And uh, to hear the lady tell the story, she said she had made cakes for these people before, but never for a wedding. And she didn't give an answer immediately when she was asked to do the wedding cake. She didn't give an answer immediately because she didn't want to hurt this lady's feelings. And she talked to her pastor about it and her husband about it. And then she just said, you know, we can't celebrate this. And so we're not, we, we don't feel comfortable making the cake. We, we have to decline. And at first, the customer said, okay, thank you for being honest with me. I appreciate what you're saying. But then after she left, she got all stirred up about it. And the judge in Oregon gave them a $125,000 fine. And the judge said, well, you could also have been given a half a million dollar fine. And I decided to make it 125000 So, like, you know, you should thank me. But basically, it put them out of business. And at this moment, they still haven't paid the fine. Um, they're making an appeal so they don't have to. But the tremendous pressure um, and our Christian leaders are caving in on this. You know, if we talk about some of the mega churches in Southern California or whatever, they're saying we're not even going to touch this issue. Um, it's never going to come up publicly because, you know, it's just going to drive wedges, drive people away, make everybody mad at us. So you will never hear us talk about it in public. And, you know, at some point, it is Jesus is our crazy uncle and it's embarrassing and we just have to avoid what he's telling us to do because it just gets us in too much trouble. So are we embarrassed? Are we ashamed of the gospel? And hopefully the answer is no, we're not ashamed. We love the Lord Jesus. And if, if he says this is wrong, then we'll say it's wrong. And, you know, if, there is, if there's any shame that comes to us for taking that stand, then that's how it is.
But even a lot of Christians now are caving in and saying, you know, we're not going to talk about this or when we talk about it, it's all going to be that the sin of homosexuality is the same to God as the sin of pinching your little brother. So we've all sinned equally and we're not going to talk about pinching your little brother and we're not going to talk about homosexuality. So let's just call it even. And that's our, that's the current vibe in a lot of Christian places. Josiah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, on the one hand, we don't have to be embarrassed by anything that Jesus says. On the other hand, uh, we don't always have to find the most prickly things that we can find in the Bible and speak only about those. So uh, hopefully, though, you're not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Just stand with Jesus and you'll be fine. Who do you say that I am? And hopefully the answer is, we think you're wonderful. That's what we think. Is he optional in my moments or is he necessary in my moments? Who do you say that I am? Uh, All the time you'll hear people say, and in a way we all say it, and it's not entirely wrong depending on the context, but you'll hear people say things like, you know, sometimes you just can't do it by yourself and you need the Lord to help you. (laughs) The correct point of view is, You can never do it by yourself and you must always have the Lord to help you in every facet of your living. So, you know, God is my co-pilot. Well, it's good to have a co-pilot sometimes because, you know, you might be in over your head. And when you are, then you can call on God. You know, that's (laughs) that is not very biblical. Without me, you can do nothing. So do you need God in your moments or just you know, sometimes you have an emergency and what are you going to do in those times you need God? <laughs> yeah, you do. But so in every other time do you need God? And so which is he? Who do you say that I am? Optional or necessary? Uh, who do you say that I am? Is his calling a dread to me or his calling is energizing to me? Like, oh no, oh no, oh no. Jesus is going to ask me to go be a missionary in Africa and I hate Africa, so I hope he never calls me to do that. Is his calling something you dread or is his calling something you are excited about? And hopefully you're excited about it. If he calls you to do the next new thing, then I hope you're excited about it. Who do you say Jesus is? I think he's the one who calls me and I think that's wonderful. Hopefully that's your attitude. Um, what about his home? Who do you say that I am? You like my home? I was telling Teresa earlier today, there is a cure for old age already. It's just most people don't want to consider it. What about that? Heaven is good or heaven is bad? You want to go, you don't want to go. Which is it? And you think, well, as a, as a last resort, I mean, uh, if you're saying that I'm going to be an absolute physical pain and misery and deformed and dementia, then okay, I guess I'll go to heaven. I'll be with Jesus. Oh, rats. So is it like the, the, the last resort? Oh, no, I have to go to heaven where Jesus is. Or is it the, the place you really wish to be right now? And hopefully it's the place you wish to be right now. Um, it's home. It's, it's the wonderful place. And if Jesus were to say, well, who do you say that I am? The one that you want to be with? Like right now, physically, tangibly, you want to be with me? Or no? And hopefully the answer would be, yeah, I want to do that right now. That sounds great.